Good evening, everybody. Would you please uh, stand and join me in the pledge? And please remain standing. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I'd like to uh, say a prayer for our country. Sovereign of the universe, merciful, mercifully receive our prayer for our land and its government. Let your blessing pour out on this land and all officials of this country who are occupied in good faith with the public needs. Instruct them from your Torah's laws. Enable them to understand your principles of justice so that peace and tranquility, happiness and freedom might never turn away from our land. Please, O wise one, God of the life breath of all flesh, waken your spirit within all inhabitants of our land and plant among the peoples of different nationalities and faiths who dwell here, love and brotherhood, peace and friendship. Uproot from, from their hearts all hatred and enmity, all jealousy and vying for supremacy. Fulfill the yearning of all the people of our country to speak proudly of its honor. Fulfill their desire to see it become a light to all nations. Therefore, may it be your will that our land will be a blessing to all inhabitants of the globe. Cause to dwell among all peoples friendship and freedom and soon fulfill the vision of your prophet. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Let them no learn no longer ways of war. And let us say, Amen. Amen. Thank you and welcome to the 600 and, I'm sorry, 670th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. And we're honored to have tonight uh, Professor Jennifer Weber with us who will speak about the Copperheads. Um, and that's a presentation I heard two weeks ago and uh, at the Kankakee Civil War Roundtable. And I know that you're going to enjoy this presentation by Professor Weber, who's going to present a very clear, concise, and um, informative uh, talk on the Copperheads. And also, it's our great pleasure to have with us this evening uh, Marvin Sanderman's family, his wife Roz, son Stuart, and Larry, um, to receive a presentation on behalf uh, to uh, um, in our memory of, of Marvin. So we're very happy to have them with us tonight and enjoy your dinner. Please uh, continue with your dinner, but a, a couple of announcements. Um, first, first uh, the book raffle. Please participate. The book raffle will be to support the Mount Zion Church uh, Restoration in Northern Virginia, Mosby, Mosby's Confederacy. Mary, anything else I should say about that? Nancy Bates Pets Project. She's uh, an immediate past president and all that, so please support her. And uh, Jerry. Well, for Shiloh, we currently have uh, 104 people signed up. There'll be two buses, and uh, we still have room for a few more. Not many, but that'll be contingent upon whether there will be rooms rooms available because we had to close out the rooms that that we needed. 
just a few things to remind everyone. I think I've reminded everyone every time I've talked before this group. We're going to semi-dry counties. That means no hard liquor can be purchased in those counties. So if you want hard liquor, you either bring it with you when you come, or you drive about 25 to 30 miles to the Alabama border where there is a liquor store. All right, so, 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 so make sure you, you know that. Do they deliver? Uh, they do not deliver into Mississippi. No, they do not. So we're, we're staying in Corinth. Uh, one thing also to remind people, the Saturday tour in the afternoon, we're going to go to the Hatchie River Bottoms, and we're going to walk around Davis Bridge and Matamora Ridge. Bring your boots, just in case. Uh, if, if, it's, uh, if it's on the wet side, it could get muddy, and you'll need your boots, and Ed Bars doesn't care whether it's muddy, rainy, whatever. He will do the tour, and if you want to follow Ed, you better have your boots with you. So that's one thing. And insect red propellant for that, that day also. So anyway, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm all pumped up over the trip, and I hope you folks are too. And we'll see you in Corinth, Shiloh, and Bryce's Crossroads. Uh, thank you, Jerry. Donna? Uh, Donna, would you introduce our, our guests? It is my pleasure to introduce three very special guests. Roz Sanderman, please stand. And, and her two sons, Larry Sanderman and Stuart. You don't look at all like your father. <laughs> we also have William Barranco, Dora Schulz, Mark Smith, Steve Stecker, Ed Urban, who is from the McHenry County Civil War Roundtable, and Scott Wilson. Thank you all for coming, and we hope to see some of you as new members. Thank you, Donna. Um, I'd like to remind everybody once again about your badges. Uh, they are out there now. They will not be out there after this calendar year. Um, Jerry Allen is pulling them all away during his administration, but... Uh, uh, that was executive committee action. All right. I, I, anything to do with the incoming president? I was I, I was defaming him, but we we will not be bringing the badges out after this year. So please bring your badge with you. And uh, I'd like to read a card that Bob Frankie sent uh, to thank the roundtable for the flower arrangement uh, at his wife's funeral. Uh, please give my loving thanks for the flowers to everyone at the table. Blessings, Bob Frankie. And a couple of other announcements. The Northern Illinois Civil War Roundtable has their 25th annual banquet on June 6th in Kildare. Thomas Cartwright will be speaking about 
presenting Sam Watkins' uh, first-person narrative, or presenting a Sam Watkins' first-person narrative. So please contact the Northern Illinois Civil War Roundtable if you're interested. And the, also the Northern Illinois annual battlefield tour, Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, October 10th and 11th. Contact the Northern Illinois Civil War Roundtable. And the Salt Creek Civil War Roundtable's annual banquet will be June the 20th. Speaker will be Cricket Pohenka, a story of the 5th New York Durye Zouaves and the artifacts they left behind. And that will take place in the Hilton Lyle in Naperville. And that's it for right now. Thank you. We're going to take a 10-minute break now and return with your nominating committee's report. Of more opportunities to use this gavel, so uh, I I intend to use it. Welcome back from your break, everybody. Uh, I would like to Nancy Bates, our immediate past president, uh, unfortunately was ill and called me today and uh, told me she wasn't able to make the meeting. So in Nancy's stead, I would like to uh, introduce. Uh, the nominating committee's nominees for trustees and board members of the Civil War Roundtable for 2008 and 9. First, beginning with the trustees, the new trustees to be nominated for 2000, uh, terms expiring 2010, John Kosiolko Kacholko. Paula Walker, please please remain standing. Um, you may be the only one standing for a while. <laughs> All right, Paula, Paula is not with us tonight. Joellen Kowalski, I know, is not with us. Bill Sosh, not with us also. The next group of trustees are trustees who were elected last year, whose terms continue through 2009. Jim Cunningham, Cheryl Cook, Sonia Reshi, David Zucker. Stand up, David. And now uh, for officers for 2008-2009, Assistant Secretary Mary Beth Foley. Please stand up, Mary. Secretary Donna Tui. Assistant Treasurer Mark Matranga. Treasurer Brian Sider, Second Vice President Bob Stoller, 
first Vice President Ray Radovich, senior Vice President, a heartbeat away, Tom Trescott, and our nominee for President next year, Jerry Allen. Can I hear a round of applause for our nominees? Thank you all. Uh, the election uh, will be in, at the May meeting, and uh, you can phone in your ballots. Thank you. Next, uh, again, welcoming uh, the Sanderman family. I would like to invite our uh, nominee for President um, Jerry Allen to have a few words of remembrance about Marv. In March of 2007, Ellen and I we're at the Pickwick Inn near Shiloh, Tennessee. There was a private dining room there where the Civil War Roundtable of Roanoke, Virginia was meeting. So I walked in and introduced myself, and their president introduced me to the group. And in closing, she said, when you get back to Chicago, express our best wishes to Marvin Sanderman. After telling them that Marvin had been taken from us the previous summer, five people came up to me to talk about Marv Sander. The odd thing about this incident is that it wasn't unusual. Marv seemed to know everyone who had an interest in the Civil War. He was really our ambassador of goodwill, camaraderie, and fun. He was also zealous about visiting every battlefield, every inch of the battlefield. <laughs> On the 1980 Shenandoah Valley tour, upon hearing that the tour would not include the Battle of McDowell, he got in his car one morning at 4 a.m. to drive to McDowell. He walked around the battlefield, and then he drove back and just barely caught the tour bus as it was leaving at 8 a.m. For this obsessive act, he was awarded the first of two Confederate Medals of Honor. Marvin Sanderman was committed to service in everything he did. He served as our president from 1982 to 1983. He served as a trustee for Lincoln College. He was on the board of directors of the Abraham Lincoln Association. For all of his service to the Civil War Roundtable, he was awarded a lifetime membership. On a personal note, I was privileged to have Marv as my mentor. I take the train to work here in Chicago and walk over to our meetings on Friday nights. For many years after each meeting, Marv would drive me to the Arlington Park train station. So during this drive, 
we would talk. Well, mostly Marv would talk, and, and I would listen. And he'd tell me about the history of the Civil War Roundtable, and he'd tell me about all of you people here. So he told me all sorts of things. He also would encourage me to increase my level of participation in this organization. He loved this organization. And he would very often say things like, it's all about the people. It's all about the friendship. It's all about the camaraderie. He had such a gusto for life. So in closing, I'd like to take you back to our June 2006 meeting. I was quite happy at this meeting because this was the last night I had to collect dinner money from you folks. That is a difficult job, as some of you can attest. That evening, to celebrate, I drank a little more wine than I normally do. I saw Marv on the other side of the room. So I walked over to him, and feeling more convivial than usual, I gave Marv a great big hug. This kind of startled him, and he asked, what's this all about? And I told him that I just wanted to express my appreciation to him for all the help he had given me over the years. Well, that evening was the last time I saw Marvin Sanderman. I was so glad that I had that opportunity to say thank you to him. So my advice to all of you tonight, if there's someone that you want to thank, don't hesitate one minute. Express your feelings now. Thank you. Jerry, thank you very much. Um, I, I'm sure there isn't a person in this room that couldn't get up here and talk about their memories of Marv. And uh, we miss him. We loved him. He was an integral part of this organization. Um, and Roz, if you and the boys would please come on up. Uh, on behalf of the roundtable, I'd like to present this, uh, this award in recognition of Marv in, in memoriam, Marvin Sanderman, Lifetime Service Award, April 11, 2008, for gallant service. Roz, thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you Jerry, for that beautiful beautiful, heartfelt speech, and I'd like a copy of it. Thank you for this caring, sensitive gesture in memory of my Marv. As Stuart and Larry always say, Mom, Dad is hanging out with us. He would never want to miss a special event with friends. For Marv, the core of his well-being was his family and the round table. He looked forward to the spring trip so very much and had a wonderful time with all of you. 
Before he came home, he was planning the next year's trip. He always had this big, infectious smile, ready to help in any way he could for his club and his friends. We miss him. In closing, I have one thing to say, one sentence. If you've seen one gap, you have seen them all. <laughs> Thank you for this memory. Thank you. Thank you all. And now if I could ask uh, uh, Mary. Mary, are you? All right, you're the book raffle. You have staff? Uh, we collected $107 for Battlefield Preservation tonight, so thank you very much. And. The last four numbers, three numbers, are 174. 174, got a winner? I should look at this. Nope. 174? Yeah, all right. Okay, Mr. Adams. Adams, all right. Chuck Adams. There are four to pick from. Yeah, yeah. Turn it around this way. Okay. Oops. <laughs> and this month, as um, our illustrious president said, uh, $500 will go to Mount Zion Church in Mosby's Confederacy for restoration. Okay, pick one, Chuck, please. Okay, thank you. Last three numbers are... Two three seven, two three seven. Jerry, <laughs> nice job, Mr. Allen. Yeah. All right. Currently reading that book. Jude Gilpin Faust. The last three numbers are two three four. Alrighty then. Okay. okay. Um, Mr. President, you want to draw one? Thanks. This one. That one? Okay, that one. Okay. Last three numbers are 264. 264? Yes, sir. Very good. Mr. Lenz? Okay. Good. Thank you. And would you pick the last pick the last one too, please? All right. And would you pick the last winner, please? Yeah. Thanks. Last three numbers are 192. That's the last winner tonight, 192. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Mr. Wiggins, nice job. All right, very good. I highly recommend it. Good book. Yeah. By Dr. Yeah. March by Dr. The March by Dr. That's, That's it. it. We're, That's we're it. finished. That's and we made $107 for Battlefield Preservation. Thanks, all of you, for participating. And I've got one... 
question um, or a request. Last month, as we were collecting for the BARS Preservation Award, the seventh annual, there's one donor whose name we can't identify, and in order to acknowledge that donor on the in the tour kit or in on the tour list and also in the June newsletter, if you were one of several donors at the March meeting, um, I'd appreciate it if you'd let me know so that we can properly acknowledge you. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Mary and Larry. And uh, David, the quiz. <laughs> Why are they so hard on you? It's respect. <laughs> Some people just like to criticize. Everyone's a critic. <laughs> However, before I get down to the, to the quiz, I don't want to steal anyone's thunder, but I would like to make a, personal, a couple of personal remarks. When I went on one of my first battlefield tours to Vicksburg, um, Ed Bars was carrying on as usual, and he pointed to a rural bar, and he said, at that rural bar over there, we're going to leave Sanderman there. Well, what Ed may not have realized is, if we had left Marv there, I have no doubt that he would have made a ton of friends throughout the whole bar. Marv was that kind of guy. He was one of this group's most stalwart soldiers. He was very much loved here, and he's still missed. Now let's get down to cases to tonight's quiz. Did Clement Vallandigham run for governor of Ohio? Yes, he did. Were the Copperheads pacifists? No, they were not. Did the Crittenden plan provide for the protection of slavery? Yes, it did. It wasn't adopted. That's why we had the Civil War. Did the Copperheads favor strict construction of the Constitution? Oh, yes, they did. The Union as it was, the Constitution as it was. Some people either missed this question or ridiculed it. <laughs> but Silas McCormick, the publisher of the Chicago Daily Times, well, Mr. McCormick was a man of many accomplishments, including inventing the Reaper. But I have it on reliable authority that yes, he was the publisher of the Chicago Daily Times. And so presumably, therefore, was a copperhead. And since in view of the fact that he was also born in Virginia, well, I don't find this too surprising. There was just one 100, General George H. Thomas. Thank you. Thank you, David. I'd like to uh, make a sad announcement. Uh, long time, I've been informed that longtime member Richard Farmer, who I believe was a trustee of this organization, has passed away. I'm not sure uh, how many of you remember Richard, but uh, uh, we're sorry to hear of his passing. And now I would like to introduce Larry Gibbs. Well, not introduce Larry Gibbs. I think we all we all know who Larry Gibbs is, and Larry uh, and ask Larry. Oh, that's that's so unkind. <laughs> yeah, and Larry's going to introduce our speaker. And I didn't even have a quiz tonight, so uh, well, it's my uh, distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, uh, Dr. Jennifer Weber. Uh, Jenny started out as a journalist for the uh, Sacramento Bee in California. Uh, and then her love for history made her change uh, course in her life. 
Uh, I led her to uh, Princeton University, where she became a student of Jim McPherson's. After Princeton, she became an associate professor of history at the University of Kansas, where she's been there for the last three years. Uh, now, I've always been interested in uh, the Copperheads uh, during the Civil War. Uh, the questions surrounding the Copperheads are numerous. You have questions about the, uh, the fact, uh, what is patriotism and where does patriotism end and treason begin? What about the suspension of writ of habeas corpus? Is that the sole uh, ownership of the president, of Congress, a combination? And how does the Supreme Court interpret the writ of habeas corpus? Uh, then you, you all, always have the ultimate question uh, about comparing in the Civil War. You compare the, what happened with the uh, presidency of Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War with the present presidency of George W. Bush uh, during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, so uh, I read one book on the, uh, on the Copperheads, and I'm sure that Jenny has one of the greatest books ever written about the Copperheads, because there haven't been very many. Uh, which is true, isn't it, Jenny? All right. Anyhow, um, I am uh, always uh, on the lookout for some good speakers. And so uh, after I bought the book of the Copperheads and read it, then I found out from some of my friends on the East Coast that uh, Jenny was a wonderful speaker, tremendous speaker, and, and of course she is. So I am uh, very happy to introduce our guest speaker tonight, Jenny Weber. Well, thank you very much, Larry. It's a pleasure to be back in Chicago. Um, Larry didn't give you my full and complete biography, but I actually went to Chicago um, right up the road at Northwestern. So I'm very familiar with Chicago, and I'm delighted to be back in town. I, every time I leave, I forget what a beautiful city this is. And so I've had a really nice time the last couple of days um, looking around and being here again. It's been, uh, and eating, actually. Um, so it's been a real delight to be back here. And um, for those of you who are going on this spring trip to the dry part of Tennessee, let me just say that when I was at Northwestern, Evanston was still a dry town. I have one suggestion for you, Howard Street. That worked really well for us in college. And you may want to make a little visit for those of you before you go down to Shiloh if you need to stock up. Seemed to work for us. Okay, well, what I'm gonna be talking about tonight is the Copperheads. And one of the things that I discovered that was a really big surprise to me in doing the research for first the dissertation and then the book that it became is that the Civil War was not just a brother's war. We all hear that all the time. The Civil War is the brother's war. What I found in my research that I just thought was completely shocking was that this was also very much a neighbor's war. In the North, in many communities throughout the North, neighbors were pitted against each other over the question of whether this war was legal and whether the way that Abraham Lincoln was prosecuting it was constitutional. And this division, these political divisions, were not 
something over which these neighbors could agree to disagree. And as a result, you had people who had lived near each other for years suddenly begin to suspect their neighbors were going to kill them in their beds at night, were going to destroy their crops, were going to kill their livestock, were going to burn down their barns. And those fears, whether you were a copperhead or a unionist, were not unfounded. All of those things happened to people in various parts of the North over the course of the Civil War. Now, support for the Copperheads waxed and waned over the course of the war in an inverse relation to how well or how poorly the Union armies were doing. And this is an important idea to keep in mind as we move through this uh, narrative that um, at times the, the Copperheads were extremely powerful, but those times always coincided with moments of Union defeat on the battlefield. And I think all of this, this entire conversation is really important because it gives us a much better idea of what Lincoln was really up against. That Lincoln was in many ways fighting a two-front war. He had the Copperheads to his front, or I'm sorry, he had the uh, um, Confederates to his front and the Copperheads at his back, and he had to deal with both of these, uh, one with guns and the other with his political wiles. Well, why don't we hear more about this story? Well, as Larry touched on, there have only been four books, including mine, written on this, really. The last one came out in 1960. The other two uh, were both, both appeared in 1942. And the book that came out in 1960 by Frank Clement argued that the Copperheads were a fairly marginal and relatively benign group. And a lot of historians bought this for a very long time. I don't necessarily agree. I don't think they were marginal at all. I think they were central to the politics of the North during the Civil War, and incredibly important in that way. They had a huge impact on the Democratic Party, particularly in 1864. And although other historians have argued that they were interested in overthrowing the federal government or state governments, I think that was not true for most of them. There were some people interested, but they were um, certainly uh, uh, outliers. Most Copperheads wanted to take political power through traditional means, which means at the ballot box. All right, who were the Peace Democrats? They really fell into three categories. The first is that they were people who had migrated to the North from the South or they were people of southern descent. And these folks you found mostly in the lower Midwest, um, by which I mean the, the southern tier of Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, and Iowa, and along the rivers that go up into um, the central part of Iowa. The second category is immigrants 
particularly Irish or German Catholics. And the reason for this is they really had no love for the Republican Party. As most of you know, the Republicans absorbed most of the Whig Party uh, and some of the nativ nativists who had targeted these immigrant communities for um, either, either that they shouldn't be in the United States or had tried to impose various um, uh, various movements on them, like the temperance movement, which they really deeply resented. And many of these people, many of the immigrants, also felt that the Civil War was not their war, and they wanted to have no part of it. The third group are conservative Jacksonians. And these folks were very strict constructionists when it came to their understanding of the Constitution. They had a very literal interpretation of the Constitution, not unlike what we see today with somebody like Antonin Scalia. And it's their dialogue, their words that become the lingua franca of the entire Copperhead movement. This idea of the Union as it was and the Constitution as it is, which became the rallying cry for the Peace Democrats in the summer of 1862 and continued to be the rallying cry then for the rest of the war. Most of these people were not traitors. They had a genuine difference of opinion with the Republican administration. Um, they were unionists, they insisted that they were loyal to the unionist, to the union cause, and I believe them. I will say, though, that I think there are some among them, not the least of which is Clement Vallandigham, uh, who probably were genuinely traitors. But they thought that secession itself was constitutional. And we begin with that assumption. There is nothing in the Constitution about the terms of admission, the terms of membership. The Constitution is entirely silent on the question of whether you can leave. And for that reason, these conservative Democrats believed that Southerners were well within their rights to leave the Union. They thought that the North should give the Southerners what they had demanded before seceding as a way to draw them back into the Union, and they were great supporters of the Crittenden Compromise. Now, although this movement, this Copperhead movement, was very visible locally and in a lot of communities in the North in the first year of the war, on a national level, it's almost entirely off the radar. That's partly because this Raj Militaire, this great support for the war and the idea that this is going to be a 90-day slam dunk war. But during this first year, you see a pattern start to develop that holds through the entire war. First, public office holders resisted the administration's efforts to institute war measures. Now, ultimately, this would come to include military appropriations, the establishment of financial tools to pay for the war, and, of course, most of all, 
emancipation and the draft. Second, they painted Lincoln as a dictator, a tyrant was the word they used mostly, employing unconstitutional methods to prosecute the war. And third, from the very outset of the war, they demanded an immediate cessation of hostilities. There were two problems with this demand. One was they never said what they were willing to give up in exchange for reunion. They never laid out a real plan for a reunion. They just squawked about it quite a lot. The second problem was they ignored the Confederates' repeated insistence that they wanted independence. What they did when they heard Confederates say that was basically stick their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 la. Can't hear you. Not listening. And so this is the way they went on through the entire war. They really started to gain a national profile in the summer of 1862. And not surprisingly, that is because that is the time that the Union armies first began to founder militarily. By early summer, already, this is only a year and change into the war, some Unionists were giving up on the cause. A New Yorker wrote in his diary that although he did not despair uh, for the Republic, many of his friends did, he noted, the nation is rapidly sinking just now, as it has been sinking rapidly for two months. In this environment, the Peace Democrats became bolder and more visible. They were increasingly worried about the measures that Lincoln was implementing to win the war. He had raised an army without Congress declaring war, as the Constitution demanded. He had suspended habeas corpus, first in Maryland and later throughout the North. Dissidents were being thrown in jail for indeterminate periods of time without being tried. Troops were destroying presses of dissenting newspapers or just padlocking their doors so that the editors and staff could not get access to their offices. And Lincoln had declared martial law in Maryland. Now, make no mistake about it. These peace Democrats, even in a time that was incredibly racist, were virulently racist. They said really awful things. Their racial uh, fears increased more as slaves ran to the Union lines in search of their freedom. And as this was going on, you see laborers, particularly immigrants, become more and more nervous about their own economic security. They're worried that these freedmen are going to come and take their, take their jobs by charging lower wages, by accepting lower wages for that. And the Copperheads really tried to capitalize on these fears by fanning racist beliefs. They argued that the abolitionists had started the war. They said that the abolitionists had far too much influence and, in fact, were running the government. They blamed 
abolitionists for the continuation of the war. And this fanned existing racial tensions. In the summer of 1862, race riots broke out, in part because of this sort of dialogue in Toledo and New York City. And the Emancipation Proclamation, when it comes out, just confirms the worst of their suspicions, that in fact, Lincoln has been lying for the past year and a half when he claims that this is a war to save the Union, that in fact, this is a war to free the slaves. And the Emancipation Proclamation is Exhibit A for them. We told you, we were right, didn't we warn you? Didn't we say that this was what this was really all about? And there were a lot of Democrats who had been sitting on the fence about where they were going to line up about the war, who had been willing to give Lincoln the benefit of the doubt up until the time of the Emancipation Proclamation. And they were so deeply offended by the Emancipation Proclamation that they joined the Copperhead Column. You see, the consequences of this just two months, not even that, actually, after Lincoln issues the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, you have the congressional elections. And the Republicans did not do well. In the state of Illinois, the legislature was uh, lost by the Republicans to Copperhead Democrats. Ditto in Indiana. The new governors of New York and New Jersey were Copperheads. So this didn't look so good. And then things got worse. You have Fredericksburg. You have the Mud March. Grant seemed to be getting absolutely nowhere in his efforts to move on Vicksburg. And now you hear heightened talk of a Northwest Confederation that the states of the old Northwest are now, are, there's talk, there's been talk since the beginning of the war, but it reaches a crescendo in January of 1863, that the states of the old Northwest are going to break off from the Union and either start their own nation or they're going to sign on with the Confederacy. Lincoln confides to a friend of his that he was facing what he called the fire in the rear. And for those of you who've heard me talk about this anymore or before, I'm afraid I'm gonna repeat my story here. Um, I actually thought about calling this book The Fire in the Rear. <laughs> you know, Civil War historians, I don't know if you've noticed, love to quote Abraham Lincoln in their titles. And I thought, oh, Lincoln quote, can't lose, fantastic, this is gonna be great. And then my friends informed me that there were scatological implications <laughs> to this and uh, they saved me from myself. Pardon me? Oh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I just, I'm a fan of Lincoln so it never dawned on me that there could be two meanings there. Anyway, um, but, Northern morale is plummeting 
in the early part of 1863. And you see this reflected in the ever-dwindling enlistments for the Union Army. Volunteers had been drawing up since the previous summer. The North, or Northern states, had resorted to a kind of proto-draft in the summer of 1862. But the federal government, for the very first time, got involved in March of 1863 when Congress passed a draft act. It's the first draft act in American history, the first conscription in American history, if you don't count the Confederates' conscription act of about nine months earlier. This really riled up anti-war Democrats because this was a huge federal incursion on individual liberties, according to the Copperheads. The Draft Act, or the Enrollment Act, brought with it a huge bureaucratic machinery. In every congressional district in the North, there was a provost marshal general's office. This was the agency that was formed to enforce and administer the draft. It's now in every congressional district in the country. Sub-districts are carved up. There are offices in, these, in several of these sub-districts. And now the long arm of the federal government is reaching deep, deep, deep into the countryside. This is the first time Americans have encountered federal authority, federal power on this scale. Their earlier encounters with the federal government were the post office and the census taker. And boy, you don't get much more benign institutions than those. And now the government can come in, they're going to knock on your door. If you are of draft age, they are going to take your name, a physical description of you, they're going to write down your occupation, they're going to make a note of your address and where you work so that if you're drafted and don't show up or if you desert the army, they know where to find you. And they are going to take your physical person, not your money, not your property, they're going to take you. And they are going to put you on the front lines where there is a reasonably good chance that you're going to get shot and injured or killed. So this is federal power at its greatest. And this allows copperheads to tap into a broad well of resentment. They started to actively undermine the war effort by encouraging draft dodging and desertion. And many were prosecuted for harboring deserters. Most of those deserters were members of their family, but even so, mothers wound up in jail for harboring their sons. But they did another thing here. They made it their business to scare off enrolling agents, these guys who were going door to door taking sort of a census for the draft. These were local men doing this job. These uh, were people who knew their neighbors and their neighborhoods. And the response of some anti-war Democrats 
was to start shooting at them. And they injured quite a number. They killed 64 or so over the course of the war. In some cases, they did destroy their property. They did burn down their barns or destroy their crops. And this became such a hazardous occupation in some parts of the North that the government could not find anybody to do the job. So the Copperhead tactics here were, in fact, fairly effective. Now, besides conscription, there was another way to get men into the army, and Lincoln tapped this one as well, and that was to accept black troops. Now, this idea, as had emancipation, briefly divided the army, but many soldiers quickly came to see the advantages of both these measures and accept them. But the presence of African Americans in the Union Army only served for copperheads to reinforce their belief that this was not a war for the Union, but one for the slaves. So there's a lot of unrest and unhappiness about copperheads. In May, early May of 1863, we see the most prominent copperhead in the Union go back home to Ohio after losing his bid for re-election to Congress. Clement Belandingham, he's on your uh, quiz. There we go. He's on your quiz. Now, the story behind Clement Belandingham and his sad tale of woe is this that uh, after the mud march, General Burnside, one of my favorites, I'm sure he's one of yours too, uh, was sent to what I'm sure everyone thought was a post that he really couldn't create much trouble in. They sent him off to the Department of um, Ohio. Burnside did not like what Vallandigham was saying. He thought, this was treasonous. And so he issued, without checking with anybody, an edict saying, if anybody says treasonous comments against the government, you will be arrested and tried. Ha-ha, the Landingham thinks I am going to get them. This is his golden opportunity to embarrass the Lincoln administration. So he goes off and he starts giving all these talks in the presence of Burnside's agents who are furiously taking notes. And at two o'clock in the morning on April 5th, the Landingham, the soldiers are at his front door. They give him just enough time to get dressed. They actually were going to haul him off in his nightshirt, but he insisted on getting dressed. They took him from his Dayton home, put him on a train to Columbus, tried him there by military tribunal. He's a civilian, remember? Try him by military tribunal, convict him of treason, and order him to spend the rest of the war in prison. Not so good for Lincoln. This is a real problem for him. This is a real dilemma. If he frees Vallandigham, he's undercutting his general. 
if he lets the situation stand, the Landingham is going to be a martyr. And so he has a dilemma on his hands. And he comes up with what I think is a very amusing and typically Lincolnian solution, which is, Mr. Vallandigham, you like the South so much? Go, we'll let you go. And he banishes him to the Confederacy. In the middle of the night, they take him down to the lines in Kentucky. They take him just in front of a Confederate picket and dump him there in front of some private in the middle of the night. And I just, I just love this idea. I just love this, imagining this scene of some private there on picket duty in the middle of the night, having some guy come up to him claiming to be a United States congressman who was a political prisoner and ranting and raving about Abraham Lincoln and the federal government and what do you do with this guy? What do you do? So the private takes him, he's like, uh, take you to my commanding officer, sir. And so he takes him and nobody knows what to do with Vallandigham and so they pass him up the chain of command and it takes a month to work this out. And in that month, Vallandigham decides, I don't like these Southerners so much. And the Confederates are saying, you know, we don't like this guy ourselves. But in that month, they jawboned him quite a bit about, do not talk about bringing the South back into the Union. We are not interested. We want our independence. And Vallandigham stuck his fingers in his ears and went, la, 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 can't hear you and it never penetrated at all. Okay, well that crisis appears to be taken care of and uh, you have this disastrous defeat for the Union at Chancellorsville, but finally things start looking up for Lincoln and his administration in July of 1863 with the twin victories, huge, at Vicksburg and Gettysburg. Unfortunately for Lincoln, he could not enjoy that for very long because 11 days later, no, 11 days later, seven days later, God, my math, eight days later, um, draft riots break out in New York City. And it quickly turns into a race riot. And I think as everybody in this room knows, this is the worst civil dis disturbance that we have ever had in the United States. It's the most deadly. But New York was not the only place that draft riots were breaking out. They also broke out in Boston, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Rutland, Vermont, Troy, New York, and Worcester, Ohio, and those cities that did not have draft riots were worried that they were coming, that they were going to break out in their own communities soon. Tension was very high, very high. And you see the summer ending on this extremely tense note. Well, back to Ohio. Lincoln and the Republicans very quickly have another challenge from our friend Clement Vallandigham, who has now decided that since he is officially of martyred status by his own account, um, he 
is going to run for the governor of Ohio from Windsor, Ontario, which is where he has banished himself now. The Confederates sent him through the blockade uh, and he eventually made his way up to Canada. Windsor, for those of you who may not know, is across the Detroit River from Detroit. And as long as Vallandigham was in Windsor, there was a federal gunboat parked in the middle of the Detroit River with its guns trained on Vallandigham's front parlor. And that's how he spent the next year was looking out his window at the gunboat with its guns aiming straight at him. Anyway, Vallandigham is now going to run in absentia for the governor of Ohio. And his central argument is this. Why is it that white men are dying for blacks? And he thinks that this is a winning formula. But there are a lot of people who are very worried that if Vallandigham won, civil war would now break out in Ohio. As it was, Vallandigham lost big, very big. And among those who were his most vociferous appointment, uh, uh, opponents were the soldiers, the Union soldiers. Whether they were from Ohio or from another state, they absolutely hated his guts. One of them wrote, we know that just such men as Vallandigham is keeping up this war, and by keeping it up is it causing all this misery. Another said that he would cut to pieces any fellow soldier discovered voting for Vallandigham. And in fact, these threats of violence uh, had become a regular part of soldiers' letters home. They, by the fall of 1863, had largely rejected the Democratic Party because of their antipathy to the, to the Copperheads, whom they blamed for extending the war and for not recognizing their service and sacrifice. Um, they routinely threatened to come home on furlough and beat up or hang any of their neighborhood copperheads. And if there were peace Democrats in their own family, they would tell that person, either change your politics or I will completely disavow you. And they did. There were a number of families that I found that were um, deeply divided, people never talked to each other again because of the copperhead leanings of some of the people at home and the, the soldiers just couldn't deal with that at all. Well, this whole episode, the, the soldiers' anger and the Landingham's total failure served to prop up Lincoln that fall and very much demoralized the conservative Democrats. So Lincoln goes into 1864 feeling pretty good about things. Vallandigham looks like he's been put away on the shelf for the time being. The armies have had these two huge successes over the summer. A lot of people in the North in the early part of 1864 were convinced that it was just a matter of months, a few months until the war would be over and victory would be theirs. 
And their feelings are bolstered in March when Lincoln appoints Grant to be the commander of all the Union armies and brings him to the east, where Grant begins to travel with the ill-fated Army of the Potomac. Grant is, as everybody in this room knows, an exceptionally aggressive general. Even if he loses, he still goes after his opponent. He can take a punch and come right back. And so he begins the Overland Campaign, which, as you know, um, in about six weeks, he took about 64,000 casualties. Huge bloodletting, huge. 64,000 casualties in six weeks. And what does he have to show for it? He's stuck in a siege outside Petersburg, Virginia. Sherman, not doing so much better. He was moving down from Tennessee into Atlanta. What happens to him? Siege. He's stuck outside of Atlanta. Earlier, Banks had tried to move from New Orleans into Texas, got turned around at Shreveport, and spent the summer of 1864 sitting on his hands in New Orleans. Confederate forces that summer reached the gates of Washington, D.C. at Silver Spring, Maryland, and were rolling up victories elsewhere. Copperheads were frantic about these developments. They were screaming for an end to the war. And they became increasingly extreme in their rhetoric. This is from a New Jersey editor. What is the difference between a butcher and a general? A butcher kills animals for food. A general kills men to gratify the ambition of malice of politicians and scoundrels. In Congress, Alexander Long of Ohio said, the Union is lost, never to be restored. And I now believe that there are but two alternatives, and they are either an acknowledgment of the independence of the South as an independent nation, or their complete subjugation and extermination as a people. And of these alternatives, I prefer the former. Up in Wisconsin, there was an editor named Brick Pomeroy who by now refused to call Lincoln Lincoln or the president. He would only refer to him as either the widow maker or the orphan maker. The nation was clamoring for peace by midsummer. Horace Greeley, the most prominent editor of the, in the country, a Republican, who headed the New York Tribune, wrote to Lincoln, our bleeding, bankrupt, almost dying country longs for peace, shudders at the prospect of fresh, fresh conscriptions, of further wholesale devastations, and of new rivers of human blood. He told Lincoln that he had been in contact with two Confederate agents based in Canada 
and that these two gentlemen had the authority to negotiate a peace with the North. Didn't pass the smell test for Lincoln. So I said, well, Mr. Greeley, I'm kind of busy. I've got this war thing going on, so why don't you go up and sort of check this out and take care of it, and I'll send you along with my personal secretary, and you guys sort of scope this out. And of course, Greeley goes up to Niagara Falls to meet these men, very quickly realizes that they have no authority whatsoever to negotiate any sort of a deal. He becomes the laughing stock of New York City that summer and uh, returns to New York with his tail between his legs, a very embarrassed man. But this moment gives Lincoln a chance to make public his conditions for peace. They were reunion and emancipation. Jefferson Davis had one condition for peace, and that was independence. As long as these two men held their respective jobs, there could not be a negotiated peace. They were at complete loggerheads about their war aims. They were non-negotiable aims, and they were, uh, they were irreconcilable differences. But many people in the North blamed Lincoln for the continuation of the war. They thought it was his adherence to emancipation that kept the war going, that the Confederacy would give up and rejoin the Union if only Lincoln would drop emancipation as a condition for peace. And it looked to Lincoln and many, many Republicans by the middle of August that it would be impossible for him to be reelected in November. In the latter third of August, the head of the Republican Party came to Lincoln and told him he would be lucky to carry three states in the fall. And he suggested that Lincoln send an emissary to Jefferson Davis saying that he would drop emancipation as a condition for peace. Now this is a pretty extraordinary argument coming from the man who heads a party that was founded on opposition to slavery. It's an extraordinary moment and it illustrates how desperate this moment was politically for Lincoln and the Republicans. And Lincoln thinks about it. He writes a note. It authorizes a man to go down and talk to Jefferson Davis saying that Lincoln will drop emancipation as a condition for peace. puts it in his desk drawer, sleeps on it, and comes back the next day and says he can't do it. He can't abandon the 180,000 African American men who have joined the Union Army, 
who are such an important component of the Union Army, who are fighting for their own freedom and the freedom of their families. Lincoln has made them a promise, and he can't go back on it, even though it means he will not be reelected as president. And this is Lincoln's great moment. This is the moment when Lincoln decides he would rather be right than president. He says that he could not break his pledge because he would be damned in time and eternity for doing so. So instead of the memo that he had to send somebody down to talk with Jefferson Davis, he writes another memo. This one lays out his plan for a transition to the Democratic president-elect who is going to be elected in November, who is certain to be elected in November. He takes that memo, tucks it into an envelope, seals the envelope, takes it to a cabinet meeting, doesn't tell any of his cabinet members what's in it, but he says, sign the back of this envelope, and we'll talk about this after the election, but I want you to do what I've laid out here. I, you just have to promise me that you're going to do that. And of course, after the election, they take it out and they read it and they all have a good laugh, uh, because of course, this didn't happen. But in August of 1864, things look really grim for Lincoln and his future as a politician. Shortly after Lincoln wrote that memo, the Democrats come here to Chicago, to the wigwam, to the same place that the Republicans had held their convention four years earlier and nominated Lincoln to be their presidential candidate. It wasn't the same place? I stand corrected. Really? Okay, I had, I had read it was the wigwam. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay, so they didn't come to the same building, but they came to the same town and held their convention. The Copperheads by now were surging in strength. They were reaching the peak of their influence. They came into Chicago, and the War Democrats were going to have a very difficult time containing them in this convention. The Democrats nominated McClellan, a War Democrat and everybody's favorite general, to be their presidential candidate. And they nominated one of the most prominent peace Democrats, George Pendleton, a congressman from Ohio, to be their vice presidential nominee. They also put Vallandigham in charge of writing the platform. Vallandigham, by the way, has snuck back into the country. He was hoping to be rearrested, but he was sadly disappointed because Lincoln called everybody off and said, no, no, just let him come in. Well, this platform that Vallandigham wrote called the war a failure 
and demanded immediate efforts to end hostilities. Republicans quickly jump on it as a traitorous document, but the Democrats don't really care. They think they've got this election in the bag. They feel great. They leave Chicago right at the end of August. You know, you just don't feel better in politics than Democrats felt when they broke up from their convention. I mean, they were so sure that they had this thing. It was gonna be a complete cakewalk. You know, here they've got this great general who has the loyalty and love of all these Union troops. Of course, he had long since lost it, but they didn't quite realize that at the time. Um, Lincoln is on the ropes. The war is going terribly. No problem. And within 48 hours, Atlanta falls. It has to be the worst political timing in American history. I actually cannot think of anything worse than this moment uh, because everything that the Democrats had said at their convention looks like a complete lie. They look totally ridiculous and they have a lot of splaining to do about that platform because people at this time take platforms seriously. They believe them. <laughs> they read them. McClellan tap dances around on this and he just cannot get out of this noose. Uh, he's stuck. He cannot, and he doesn't have the political skills anyway to, to, to deal with this at all. And the conservatives, some of them, many of them in fact, go blindly on through the fall thinking that uh, will be no problem, McClellan will win, their man Pendleton is going to be the vice president, fantastic, it's wonderful. Lincoln crushes them in the November election. He wins by about a 10 point margin and most tellingly he takes 82% of the soldier vote. It is a huge victory. The soldiers who had supported him when things weren't going well are very happy to support him when things are going well. And they're a critical part of the explanation of Lincoln's success at this moment, not only for their ballots, but also the bullets, that they won key battles, key victories at a crucial time for Lincoln. The Democrats, meanwhile, are hoisted on their own petard. Republicans say they have the smell of treason about their clothes, and this smell lingers about the Democratic Party until the election of Woodrow Wilson. And the reason it really starts to go away in the 20th century, early part of the 20th century, is because the veterans of the Civil War die off and there's no living memory of the Copperheads and of what Republicans claimed were their treasonous ways. But it took two generations, really, 
for the Democrats to fully bounce back from the damage that the Copperheads had done uh, to them. The efforts of these conservative Democrats at times undermined the war effort, especially in regards to mobilizing men for the army. They were not on the margins. They were central to northern politics over the entire course of the war. They wanted to gain power, but not through a coup. They wanted to do it through mainstream politics and the traditional method of the ballot box. It's important to understand about these peace Democrats if we're to have a full understanding of union politics, of the northern home front during the Civil War, and of the true dimension of the crisis that Abraham Lincoln faced in his years as president. Thank you. Would you take some questions? Sure, be happy to. Yes. Was the penalty who ran with the felons, he also later the author of the Penalty Civil Service Act? No idea. Stump the stars. All right, first question out of the box. I, the question was, uh, was this George Pendleton the same Pendleton who? The author of the Pendleton Civil Service Act. Okay, who wrote the Pendleton Civil Service Act. I cannot answer that. Okay, but thanks very much. <laughs> Come back again sometime. Yeah, back here. Democrats during the war opposed soldier absentee voting mm -hmm. uh, because they feared most frontline soldiers would be Republicans voting. How did they claim before the war or at least before the soldiers if they opposed the very idea of soldiers being voting? Well, that was what a lot of soldiers thought too. I think I think that there were a number of problems that the Democrats had in in their position, and I can't explain their thinking because it, it you know it, it boggles the mind at points. And and I think that all I can say is they were not thinking rationally at, at some points. I, I I don't understand how they can do some of these things and and not think that there's a problem. So I I can't answer your question because I don't understand it myself. Yes. You mentioned uh, that, that one of the three pillars of the Democratic movement were conservative Jacksonian Democrats. Right. And the Democratic Party in the 1850s and 1860s was very much the party of Jackson. Mm -hmm. The main that really until FDR, Jackson was the greatest hero mm -hmm. of the Democratic Party in the 20th century. And Jackson was a living member before the 1860s. They were as close to Jackson as we are to Ronald Reagan, so he was very much a living presence. My question is this. Other than Alexander Hamilton, there was no greater exponent of sheer presidential power in American history than Andrew Jackson. So how do Democrats, with a straight face, argue that we have this horrible presidential all this excessive federal power, which we as Democrats would never dream of doing, 
your greatest hero was Andrew Jackson. Well, because Jackson, um, in in some, he played both sides of this question, right? Uh, in in some ways, he is he claims a lot of presidential authority, but at the same time, you know, he dismantles the national bank uh, in part because you know he argues that. It's too powerful. It's not an elected body. He has a lot of suspicion about centralized power. He believes in states' rights. And so people who, um, when you talk about Jacksonians broadly and the party of Jackson, there are many strands within that. Um, and this is, these are the most conservative Jacksonians that you can uh, come up with. Even Right. Right. Well, but again, the finer points of this are not of interest to them. You know, these are these are not people. It's not that they're stupid. But I think it's fair to say there's not a subtlety of mind here that allows them to really think about that or that they're inclined to ponder that. They see Jackson as the great conservative. And they can very happily ignore that. Yes? No, this was what they called themselves. They called themselves conservative Democrats. Yeah. And they're talking about they're they're talking about conservatism in terms of their view of the Constitution and the interpretation of the Constitution. Okay. Uh, first, the first question was Seymour a Copperhead. This is the governor of New York. I think he was. I think he was. I think his actions uh, really suggest that he points that way. Certainly, his rhetoric uh, falls into line with, say, the more moderate segment of the Copperheads. Um, but I think that his behavior, particularly doing, during before, during, and just after the draft riots in New York City was absolutely deplorable, and I think very much suggestive of a Copperhead turn of mind. Um, it is also his phrase, the Union as it was and the Constitution as it is. That was actually his campaign slogan in 1862 that the uh, conservative Democrats picked up on and adopted as their own. So I think he was of a similar mind. 
Now, uh, the 1868 election, you're getting a bit beyond my purview. My guess, I, I have a very hard time believing that a majority of whites, uh, uh, particularly in the North, uh, voted for somebody other than the great war hero, Ulysses S. Grant. I, I, I find that kind of difficult to believe. Um, but that being said, I don't know for sure. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Jenny. First of all, as I said in the introduction, uh, you are a wonderful speaker. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, second, I have uh, two questions for you. Uh, one, I don't think you mentioned uh, how the term copper is originally. Yes, that's because I forgot. <laughs> okay, yes, yes. I actually didn't forget how they got their name, I just forgot to mention it. Okay. Copperheads first turned up in the summer of 1861 as a Republican slight against these uh, Peace Democrats. It didn't really catch on for another year, though. And Copperheads, of course, refers to this highly venomous snake in the grass that will kill you dead if you are not careful. Um, now, the Copperheads, as often happens, tried to turn that on its head because at the same time, Copperhead was something that was the term that people used for the penny. And at the time, Lincoln was not on a penny. <laughs> but Lady Liberty was. And this was, to the Peace Democrats, the perfect symbol of what they believed in because they were arguing for civil liberties and for their vaunted liberties that had been handed down by the founding fathers. And so they would make pins out of the penny and put them in their lapel and wear them proudly. Really? Okay. I've never actually seen one, so that's very interesting. I've just read all about it. Why don't you tell me about that later? Okay, question number two. Uh -huh. How do you Yeah. Pardon me? Okay. Okay, did everybody hear that question? Yeah, yeah? Do I, should I repeat it? Okay. All right. So, the, um, okay, compare Lincoln and Bush. Um, there are people who like to do this. Um, here's what I would say. What I would say is uh, there, there are people, seriously, who have argued that Lincoln's use of expanded presidential power uh, justifies Bush's use of expanded presidential power, and that Lincoln suspended habeas corpus under Lincoln, people were imprisoned without trial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, there are people who predict that Bush will be rewarded by historians for his fortitude 
and sticking with this war the same way that Lincoln was. Um, I don't want to get into what historians may think 20, 30 years from now, because we're not there yet. But, but the point that I would make here is that while I think that there are superficial similarities here, I do think that they are superficial. I think the important things to keep in mind here in terms of the exercise of presidential power uh, are what kind of a war is this that we have today versus what kind of a war was the Civil War? Who are you fighting? How many of your resources are you putting into this? In the Civil War, the North was totally mobilized for the war. They were fighting people who looked like them, who sounded like them, who had similar values as they did. The fact that people who are opposing the war are being imprisoned um, is not surprising when you can get Confederate agents sneaking into the North and because they look and sound and have a similar heritage to those in the North, they can pass very easily. The Confederacy abuts the Union. And so I think that the dimension of the threat is different. And I think that the fundamental question of whether the country will survive the outcome of this war is completely different in the wars that we're fighting today and the Civil War. So um, I will leave you to come to your own conclusions, but I think that those are very salient points here to keep in mind. Yes? My particular interest in the Civil War, and many of the folks in Congress in the Civil War were very, very close to the Well, they voted against. They vote. Right, right. But they were routinely against these because they thought that this was a gross um, abuse of power and a gross increase in federal power. They were absolutely opposed to it. You know, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, the uh, I suspect that the that the numbers in Congress did not accurately reflect the the percentage of the population that at the height of Copperhead power were, were you know had Copperhead leanings. If that helps at all, okay. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, they absolutely did. They were they were deeply opposed to these financial measures. They were oh, they were yelling and screaming and and you can see it in a lot of their pamphlets and things. These acts, these bills come up again and again and again as these horrible outrages that the Republicans have thrust upon the country. Yeah.
Well, I think if they had been able to move the election to August, they would have had a fantastic victory. Uh, but given that the election was in November, it, it, timing is everything. And, and th this was a really bad timing on their part. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I think that once Atlanta falls, it's, it's over for the Democrats. And, and particularly then, you get that followed up with Sheridan in the Valley and other union successes, and it's just, it's done. It's done for them. Stick a fork in it. All right. Anything else, or are you going to stick a fork in me? Jenny, thank you very much, and uh, I really appreciate your, we all appreciate your coming here, putting up with American Airlines that canceled your flight getting here, but, but you're here and hopefully- American uh, Airlines, <laughs> woohoo! Hopefully you'll make it back, and I'd like to present you with our traditional medal to uh, Jennifer L. Weber, April 11, 2008, for gallant service to the Civil War Roundtable. Thank you very much. Thank oh, you. This is lovely. Thank you so much. Wait a minute, I have a couple more remarks. A very few, thank you. Be sure to come back next month to vote for this fine slate of officers. Remember to bring your badges. And please join us May 8th to hear Professor Vernon Burton, Professor of History and Sociology at the University of Illinois, speak about uh, Lincoln uh, and uh, his new book, The Age of Lincoln, winner of the Chicago Tribune Heartland Award um, for nonfiction uh, in nonfiction. Thank you very much. Safe driving. Good night.